0: Trigger warning! This episode contains racist language and detailed descriptions of traumatic events that may be disturbing and upsetting. Please feel free to skip this episode. Please note, the views and opinions shared in this episode are personal and belong solely to the contributor, and do not necessarily reflect the views of Gauden magazine.
1: There was a house party in New Cross in 81. Bertine people were burnt to death in the fire itself.
2: One killed himself later on. I'm one of the survivors of the New Cross fire from 1981.
0: What we think we know. Black Wall Street. Myth or reality?
2: There
1: were young people, 70s, 80s, across the country, who got together to form these associations where they could fight and challenge institutional racism.
2: We got people from every part of this country Manchester, Birmingham, Huddersfield, come down to show support and solidarity. They could have filled a football stadium. We stopped London, and we stopped London for a good cause.
0: I'm Clark Chiquette, and in our first season of Reclaimed and rewritten, I'll be exploring the myths and realities of Tulsa and the 1921 race riots that decimated the thriving Black community known as Deep Greenwood.
2: Always remember, The New Crossfire, it was an attack on humanity. And still, we get no justice.
0: The aim of Reclaimed and Rewritten is to find and tell the whole truth of our complicated histories, leaving no stone unturned. Some truths will be difficult to hear, and others will bring great pride and joy.
2: In the early days, the story used to bother me. I'd cry. Now, I get strength from it.
0: In the last episode, I spoke with British journalist Paula Akpan, who shared three moments in British history that mirrored the events of the Tulsa Massacre. One of these events was the 1981 New Cross fire that took the lives of 13 young people. I'm joined by Wayne Haynes, who was the DJ at the party New Cross and also Tony Warner from Black History Walks, who will be unpacking the racial climate in the UK in the 70s and 80s and the activism that followed the New Crossfire. It's such an honor to have you on the show today, Wayne. I know you're a DJ, but did you always want to be a DJ?
2: I didn't want to be a DJ. I was born into DJing. My father was a DJ. His two brothers, they were DJs. My dad was a sound, a sound man and singer, and I was actually born at home. We lived in one of those double-fronted houses and I was born in one room and my dad was in the next room across the hallway beating music. Had the sound system on banging down the place while my mum was, was giving birth. So music has just always been in my blood. Do you know what? I can't put it down. It doesn't matter what I do. I've, there's many times I've tried not to do it because it can be very hard work, training, very hard on relationships. But no matter what I do in life, I've been to uni, I've got a business degree. I'm a qualified accountant. I always come back to music. It's there. I like entertaining people. I like to see people's faces when they're dancing and they're enjoying the music.
0: So can you paint a picture of what it was like growing up in the UK in the 70s and the 80s?
2: You know, I come from a time when people were still looking behind, behind black people to see if we had tails, and I'm not joking. 70s, 80s, England was hard. From a black man's point of view, a young black man's point of view, England was a place where you could have fun. We were able to have fun growing up as kids. But you see, when you started getting to be 15, 16, and you were really getting into your teens, things changed. Well, as a 15, 16, 17-year-old back in the late 70s, early 80s, it was very easy for you to be walking down the road and get your head knocked off by a police baton. I, I remember asking a guy not too long ago, like, do you remember when we used to be, like, walking down Edward Street and you used to have to look out for the, the little Ford Cortina because the plainclothes police would be dead t- They'd pull up right next to you in a little Ford Cortina. Four of them jump out and start beating the hell out of you they jump back in and drive off. You know, so although we had great times, we also had to watch our back all the time. I'll never forget, I applied for a hundred different apprenticeships within two years. I never got a look in. And I always used to say, I hate this little box where it asks you what race you are. Because I always felt that that was a way of keeping me out. So, you know, trying to explain London is very, very difficult because there are those that know and those that don't know. A friend of mine, he and I, we went to Lewisham Precinct as young boys, looking to go and check young girls. It's what we used to do after after school. All the schools used to be, the uh, buses used to converge on Lewisham, so all the schools converged on Lewisham. You went down to the precinct to go and go and check girls. We weren't in the precinct five minutes and they grabbed Michael, threw him in the back of a, what we used to call a black Marais, a black police van, took him to Ladywell Police Station and beat the hell out of him. They wrapped him in a wet blanket so that you can't see no bruising. The problem they had is they broke his arm. That's a 15-year-old kid, you know, that's, and that's what we suffered just because, as far as they were concerned, we shouldn't be in the precinct. Racism was rife in the 70s and 80s in London.
0: I wish I could say I can't imagine what it was like, but I really can. We have similar stories here. For example, you know, my dad was um, new to a neighborhood in Tennessee, um, the southern United States. And literally within like the first month of being there, his car got tagged with like KKK emblems. But, um... How would your parents respond to incidents like the ones that you mentioned?
2: So with the parents that we had, unfortunately, a lot of our parents were colonialized. So if you got in trouble with the police, then you'd done it. There was no ifs, buts, or maybes. You'd done something or they wouldn't have troubled you. So then you used to get in trouble, get beat up by the police or get in trouble with the police and then go home and you still get in more trouble again with your parents because... They were colonialized. As far as they were concerned, the powers that be are not going to pick you up on the street for doing nothing.
0: With all that stress and strife, the parties that you attended must have been a massive release, right?
2: Our partying was great. You lot don't know how to party? We 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 had the best parties back in the seventies and eighties, man. Our partying was it was a real joy. But you know what it was? It was a self expression of what we went through throughout the week. That was our let loose. When you let loose, you did let loose. We went out and we danced and we smiled and we enjoyed ourselves. It was like free yourself from the shackles of the week that you've gone through.
0: Yes, I love that. I just, I find it interesting how black people across like the entire diaspora use music and specifically dance to experience freedom and joy and even release, like you said in the types of ways that white supremacy would have them denied. Like, it just reminds me, for example, how like enslaved Africans here in the States would hold their own church services and they would dance and they would sing praises. And this was just, this was their time to be in their space and to do their thing and to dance and sing and just for one second, not be affected by these external forces. It's the 17th of January, 1981. How old were you?
2: I was, I was 17. 17, Yeah, I was 17.
0: So thinking back to that night in 1981, can you take us through the events of that night um, like what was the vibe like? The music, the food,
2: the people. Huh, you said food. I remember nothing about no food, man. That was that weren't even that didn't even come into by the time I was hungry. oh, I, I think the party was finished. <laughs> but in all honesty, like that night, I say it all the time, that was one of the best parties that I've ever, ever been to, let alone DJ that. To this day. And believe me, I played all over the world now.
0: So whose party was it, and what was it in honor of, or rather who?
2: It was a 16th birthday party and an 18th birthday party. I mean, as far as I was concerned, it was Yvonne's birthday party, so it was a 16th birthday party. Angela's got tacked on because of whatever reason. But because of that, there was like different sets of people going to that party throughout the night. So you had the younger people that were there by ten o'clock, sort of thing, ready to party as soon as the set turns on. And then, like one, two o'clock in the morning, they gotta go home because if you don't get home, your mum's gonna lock you out. You get beaten. Then you've got the crew that are like sixteen to twenty. They just come out at one, two o'clock in the morning. And then you, you get the people that are coming there after they've been to a club. And remember, this ain't no shubes. This ain't no blues dance. This is somebody's birthday party. A 16th birthday party that had people in there that was up to the age of like 23. The music was on point. My sound system was on point for a change. (laughs) Because back in the days, we used to have sound systems and we know about getting two pieces of wire and screwing them together and put some tape around. That'll That (laughs) work. So sometimes the sounds, just they would be going fine, they'd break down. For my sound was going on good. It was great. But I tell you what, to go backwards to that evening, I remember after taking getting the set there, I just walked home to go and get changed. And I will never, ever forget my mum saying, mm. now my mum's a Bajan, my dad's a Jamaican. And my mum's got that sing-song Bajan accent. And she used to call me, E. don't know why you got tonight. And I, I was like, what? Oh, the, oh hell no, we ain't starting this crap again, mama. Like, I'm not stopping. I'm going out. No, no. Oh, my knees. Are, my mum made me rub her knee for over an hour with some kind of balm from the West Indies that stunk. And it took me another hour to wash it off. But my oh, my knees are aching. And then just before I left out the door, my mum said to me, I really don't want you to go out. I had a dream last night. I saw white doves and blood. But, you know, West Indians, Africans, our parents have got this thing about, they. I don't know whether it's some spiritual thing or it's some kind of witchcraft, or, but they see things in their dreams. And I was like, you know what, mum? I'm going. I'll be all right. I'll see you in the morning. And I left the house. Only not to get back home the next morning. That in itself, when I think about that, that was mad like, my mom saw it coming.
0: I feel like we talk about it now in the present day as like, mom's just not really wanting you to leave the house, period. But like there is some like truth to this based on some of the general experiences, but even personal experience too. So the sound systems are up and running. People are enjoying the vibes, dancing, laughing and talking. Were there any moments of tension? Because um, I know in my experience, something always pops off at like some point.
2: I've heard so many different stories about there being a fight. Do you know what? I never saw no fight. I never heard no fight. My friends never told me about no fight. I heard about people having beef where, you know, one man, one man starts troubling the next man's girlfriend and the next man's just saying, you know what? Brother, just leave that alone, otherwise we're going to go for... Nothing more than that. People had a great time. Even the the survivors that I talk to now, they will tell you the party was great up until that point.
0: So let's talk about that point. Um, how did everything unfold? What happened?
2: I smelt something, like something was burning. But like I would said to you earlier on, because... Back in the day, we used to twist two pieces of wire together to make it, to make electric things work. Anything could have happened. So I've said to one of the guys who's the main sound the engineer for the equipment for the sound system, it's by a group called the Wailing Souls, it's called Kingdom Rise and Kingdom Fall. Just how poignant. Whenever I think back to that and I think, wow, that started playing. And I'll never forget like Steve. He's named Steve Collins, unfortunately, R-I-E-P, Steve. We used to call him Brillo. I said, Brillo, you need to look behind the behind the amps, look at the amps, and make sure everything's all right. I said, I'm going off down. I'm going downstairs. Go and get a drink and come back. And I remember I walked out of that room, and the smell. It wasn't a strong smell of fire. It was just a small smell of smoke. And I walked down the stairs, and I remember getting halfway down the main stairs because the fire was on the ground floor. The fire was on the first floor. The party itself was on the first floor. So I've walked down these stairs, and when halfway down the stairs, like if you look to your right, you could see the kitchen door. Now, throughout the night, that when I'd come, when I'd been downstairs, there was a table across the kitchen door because that's where food and drink was being served from. Everybody that came in that house was told, do not go in the front room. You're not out in the front room. The front room's out of bounds for you, for you youngsters. The party's upstairs. There was a man, there was a doorman, his name's Johnny Quango, right? He was there holding the door for a long time.
0: Just to clarify, you're saying that the kids at the party couldn't get into the room where the fire started?
2: It wasn't happening. I'm not saying kids didn't go in there because there were some children that were actually very close to the family. So, yes, they may have got an opportunity to go in there, but the majority of kids didn't go in there. Anyway, I've come in down the stairs, I've realised there's no table and there's no adults, And I'm like, hold on, what's going on? And as I start to step, come down further down the stairs, I noticed it wasn't a lot of smoke. It was a whisper of smoke coming out of the front room. And the front room door was only just barely cracked open. When I've looked in front of me, the front door's wide open. And I could see people outside. But now I can smell smoke. So I've turned round and I've ran back upstairs ran back into the main music room, into the main party room. And I've I've shouted fire. But like, it could have been a minute, it could have been two minutes. They didn't pay me any attention. They didn't pay me any mind. And I kept shouting fire. And I remember like, I had um, a sheepskin coat, which I'd put down behind the speaker box, which was right next to the door. And I remember I closed the door and I, put the sheepskin coat at the bottom of the door and started shouting fire again. It was like that's when people started taking a bit of notice of me and then the next thing you know, the door flew open and there was a shout of fire, fire. I have now got to understand that that was R.I.P. Paul Ruddock and he shouted fire and carried on running upstairs because there's another floor and some of the kids are upstairs as well. So at that point now, I've got one of the guys from the sound system, can't remember if it was Jerry or Steve, to take something off of the off of the set and use to break the windows. I remember trying to get the like get the girls out first and do you know what? I'd say within five minutes, all of that went down the drain. It turned into one of those black and white movies, you know, the old the old school Lauren Hardy black and white movies and stuff like that where everything either looks like it's going really fast or it looks like it's going really, really slow. Everybody looked like they were under a strobe light and then the next thing was like it's really loud noise. And that was when the sound system t- totally kind of just shut down. By this time, you've got people at the windows they are trying to f- help people out and at the same time, you've got people pu- you've got people pulling other people back because now the room's filled up with smoke. Everybody's scared, everyone's running. And I remember standing back and standing in the middle of the room and thinking, I don't want to die. And I remember feeling sweat or what I thought was sweat and I was rubbing my face later to find out that wasn't sweat. That was me rubbing the skin off of my my face. It had gotten so hot that people's skins was peeling. At that point, I decided, you know what, i got to get out of here. And I grabbed the sheepskin coat that was behind the door, put it on backwards. Don't ask me how I know to do all of this stuff. I've got no idea. It's stuff that you learn, I suppose, as a cub or as a boy scout and all that. But I remember I put my sheepskin coat on back to front and ran out the door, through the fire, because by now the fire was at the door of the room. So I ran out there and up the stairs, feeling my way. I remember like feeling, I don't know if it was bodies or people unconscious or what, I just kept going. And in the end, I kept on following the smoke. And what basically what had happened is the people who were on the top floor had opened windows, so the smoke was bellowing out, coming up. But that's also... Fuel in the fire. We're in a three-story house. Doors and windows open. It's old. The house had just been decorated the week before, so there was white spirits underneath the stairs at downstairs. It was just a disaster waiting to happen. And eventually, I got to the I got to the top floor, and I remember pulling my coat off, right off, and I could just just barely see that smoke going one way. So I followed the smoke out and I event I got to a window in one of the bedrooms and I started to climb out when I got out onto the window ledge, I realized there's a guy on on the drain pipe already going down, so I've got on the drain pipe now and I've started going down then the next thing I feel somebody else's foot on my somebody's foot on my head they're coming down the drain pipe drain pipe pulls away from the wall. What I'd done is I let go and Back in those old houses, those old Victorian houses, they used to have outside toilets. So it was like a little outside shed attached to the back of the house. I went straight through the roof of that and smashed myself up on the porcelain toilet bowl. Apparently, I came down through the ear like a ballerina on one leg. So that's why I, I ended up with my right leg halfway up in my chest. Smashed my hip to 133 pieces damaged all my nerves, ligaments, loads. I got burns on both hands, both arms, to my fingers, to my my shoulders.
0: Were you given any access to any kind of mental health support after the fire? I'm a fire survivor myself, so I know firsthand how much therapy is required to recover from such an intense and traumatic experience. And sometimes therapy is not even enough particularly if the person counseling you doesn't have that experience.
2: We didn't have counseling back in those days. Nobody came to counsel us. We grieved by ourselves. I grew up in New Cross and they call the New Cross crew the Ghetto Posse. Well, the Ghetto Posse that people hear about now in the 2000s isn't the Ghetto Posse that was in the 70s and the 80s. The Ghetto Posse was was created to build a family A lot of us came from single-parent families. So we created a crew to be each other's minders, each other's keepers, each other's brothers and sisters. And that's exactly how we lived. So this thing kind of smashed us up. We went in all different directions. And, you know, I can tell you about some of my friends, two brothers, for instance. One of them is the reason why I'm alive, because he stood outside that house until they, the last person came out and then he ran and told my mum that I was dead and my mum then sent somebody to come and go up there to find out what the hell is he talking about and because of that person going up there and talking to the fire brigade they actually went round the back and found myself and another survivor um, named Basil Basil's the one who was on the drainpipe coming down behind, behind me
0: Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com.
2: This tragedy has maimed so many people and has left so many people in a space where They can't function, right? I know people who haven't had relationships because of this. I know people that end up still going backward and forward to mental institutions because of this. It's one of the biggest tragedies this country has ever seen on mainland, especially in terms of children. And 41 years on today, Nothing has ever been done. Every time we try to do something, we try to make something happen, these people pull us back.
0: Which people are you referring to?
2: The powers that be. Because you know what? Even 41 years later, we're getting no justice. We went through two inquests and they came up with the same answer. But they had so much more information and so much more proof but you still got gave the same answer but then can you imagine this government that we that we live under paying 64 i don't know ghetto people for want of a better word turning them into millionaires cuz that's what you'd have to do now that was never going to happen people used the new crossfire for a lot of things do you know something the black activists back then, they used the fire as a way to step up their lives and their campaigns, to become the black leaders that they wanted to be. But in doing that, you helped the police to not do their job.
0: So in what way did that occur?
2: Because the fire was never investigated properly, right? You had your, I think it was three months after the fire, you had your first inquest, you hadn't even finished talking to the people that were there. At the same time, I had people like sneak into my hospital bedroom, asking me for an interview, and me like a stupid idiot, being a youngster, not knowing any different, thinking, yeah, my black people, my black people. He'd done an interview, said, I got to run off to get this, I got to run off to get this on the air for this evening show. And when I listened to the evening show, he had edited the interview. To make it sound like I was saying white people started this fire, I've never said that.
0: How's the saying go? Not all skinfolk are kinfolk? I think the assumption is always that if you seek help from a Black person in a position of authority or influence, that they'll help you or do right by you. And that's not always the case. I recall in the days leading up to the Tulsa Massacre, a famed Black preacher acted like the ex-vets who went down to the jail to make sure one of their own wasn't lynched overnight were thugs and hooligans. This also brings back memories of the way the Black and white press dealt with the violence after the massacre, and how the truth was conveniently muddled. Looking back and reflecting on this, it strikes me as really important that we have a wide range of mediums and outlets where we can tell our own stories. Wayne, what makes you think that the case wasn't presented or investigated properly?
2: Well, I'll tell you this. I worked with the forensics. I worked with the police, the second set of police. Really nice people. And I'm an intelligent man. I'm not stupid. I went to their offices and saw stuff. I saw how they worked this stuff out. The fire started inside. One, I know this because the way house sound systems used to string up, is we used to string up against the wall. So you, nowadays you get DJs playing from behind the set. We used to be in front of the set playing. So the set is strung up by the window. If somebody had thrown a bloody petrol bomb, somebody in that room upstairs would have seen this fireball flying, flying through the window. That's first and foremost. Secondly, and when the forensics done their their, their stuff, there was no, no window glass found inside the house. So if any projectile had been thrown through the window, glass would have been inside.
0: It makes sense. I wanted to know more about the community action that followed the New Crossfire. So I spoke with Tony Warner, who is part of Black History Walks, an organization that coordinates tours, talks, and river cruises based on the Black history of London. So Tony, we spoke with Wayne, a survivor of the fire, and he felt that not enough was done for the victims and survivors, and that many Black activists at the time were out to build their name rather than to fight for justice. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, you can say the same thing about about Grenfell, in that there are certain people who you could say capitalized off the situation, others who were kind of conscious and um, diligent and really, really committed. So that it's not, not anything new really when it comes to a disaster. Even when you have an earthquake, sometimes there's people who rip off the earthquake victims. So the, um, but yeah, there were a number of established groups that were around that you know supported and helped the families um, throughout the entire situation. Say so there was a number of groups that literally helped people, and the evidence is there because the families themselves will recognise those people that helped them. People like Agri Burke, for example, he's a very well-known psychologist. He helped, he give um, what do you call it, counselling to similar survivors and helped them literally to recover from the trauma experience. So there are people like that that are bona fide. They're well-known people who are um, around the time will know those those names, and you know that just speaks for itself.
0: What are your thoughts on how the victims and survivors were compensated and treated after the fire?
1: The authorities showed no interest, no care for the victims. The police, in effect, tried to blame the victims. Um, The press ignored the entire situation. And the black community was outraged because, well, because you would be outraged for that. But also, there was a a history of racial attacks on the black community um, in the 70s and 80s. And people just had enough. In Brixton, there were racial attacks on black-owned businesses. The Black Panther Party in Brixton had recorded a number of these instances. Now, there's actual a letter, and it talks about how there were, like, three or four racial attacks in, like, one week in a certain era. Aimed at Black bookshops, aimed at Black businesses. You know, this is a kind of a, an ongoing kind of um, campaign of racial harassment. It wasn't just in London either, because um, if you go to Manchester, Birmingham, um, racial attacks on black on premises or Black bills where Black people lived, was a regular normal
0: thing. This series is focused on the Tulsa Massacre of 1921 and how it connects to similar events that occurred in the UK. In the first instance, what do you think of when you hear the words Tulsa Massacre?
1: Well, what I'll say about Tulsa is that Tulsa is just the best known of a number of racial attacks on African-American communities in America, but that's 1921. In 1919, yeah, something called the Red Summer Riots. And this is just after the end of World War One, when you have a lot of black guys who are coming back from World War One, who are sometimes in uniform, they've got experience of fighting, they've got a lot more confidence, they maybe don't want to take no nonsense any longer, and those people are treated in a particular fashion. They're attacked on a regular basis. So across America in 1919, we have these racist riots where white people are attacking black people, and black people are fighting back. Even after twenty one, you see there's another incident in a place called Rosewood. So Rosewood takes place in nineteen twenty three, and basically the whole town is kind of um, destroyed by these white supremacists. So there's this. That's the thing about when it comes to history. History, it's like the media picks out certain stories and tells you that story and say, What's well, a bad thing. But that's, you know, it's a very bad thing. Let's move on." But in fact, it's part of a continuum of racial attacks on black communities that is, the evidence is there, the history is there, but when you speak about Tulsa, it's like, it's, it's shown as an aberration, so that's really bizarre and weird and strange, but it was part of a regular kind of, um, way of intimidating and attacking black people mm. and stealing their land.
0: Hmm. In contrasting the Tulsa massacre with comparable events in the UK, including the new crossfire, what jumps out of you? What are some of the similarities and differences?
1: First of all, if I could go back to the UK, we should be aware that in 1919 in this country, there are race riots across the country in Cardiff, in Newport, in Liverpool, and in Glasgow. Black people were attacked for being black. And again, this is after World War, One is over, you have a number of black people who are employed here, working here. When war's over now, the white guys come back and want to have the jobs that some black people actually have. And also, black guys come back and they want to get a job and so there's comp- competition for for jobs so groups of up to 300 400 white people are attacking black people black businesses black homes and in fact there's a guy called charles wooten charles wooten was from bermuda he was chased by a mob of angry white people into the dock where he drowned because he couldn't get back to show because he's been harassed by these white people throwing stones at him i suppose one compar- comparison is that the mainstream media do not accurately cover the cause of the riots. Because even with the Notting Hill riots, it was said to be, by the mainstream media, it was um fuggery, it was um, people who were just criminals, um, and there was no racial motive. This is what was recorded, that it was not really about race, right? That's the impression you're given. Even though, at the time, the police themselves, who, of course, are racist, recognised and wrote down that there was a racial element to the attacks, in that they were being told... We're gonna F up these N-words. And the other thing about the riots is that a couple of years after the, the so-called rights, such you say, because we weren't really riots, they were there self-defense in effect, That's when you have the um 62 Immigration Act coming in, which restricts the number of black people who can come in, who can come here. So this is a, a re- this is a kind of high-level reaction to this situation that the problem is not really racism against black people it's the fact that black people exist in this country so let's just reduce the numbers and from 62 you then have a whole bunch of laws which increasingly restrict the movement of black people to this country and going back to the new cross uh, fire and the black people's day of action you know that 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 black people's day of action 81 was the biggest ever march of black people ever and it was all about basically human rights, equal rights. It was a, about police brutality. It was about um, discrimination in the employment market. It was all these things. It's it about racism. it specifically was an anti racist march, which took place in 81, biggest ever, right? Now, we know the March on Washington in America took place in 63, 63, right? Now, which one do you think gets taught in UK schools as a matter of course that's on the curriculum? We get taught here at primary school and secondary school about the march on the wash to Luther King in America, but the anti-racist march which took place in this country in 81 is not referred to even by comparison. You can go you can go to schools right now and ask kids about the Black bills of action. they don't they don't anything about it because it's not on the curriculum whereas that curriculum would recognize and indeed I suppose you could even say honor the resistance that took
2: place in America, whereas the stuff that took place here isn't referred to.
0: I asked Wayne about the Black People's Day of Action.
2: You know, I wasn't even out of hospital. I spent six months in hospital. I wasn't even out of hospital when they were having that march. And that made me, one of, that made me so proud to be black because we got people from every part of this country, Manchester, Birmingham, Huddersfield, come down to show support and solidarity. What a great day. Yeah, there were little scuffles and things went on, but that was going to happen because, you know, Fleet Street at that time was like, that that was the headquarters for the newspapers in in this country. And can you imagine, like, my friends are telling me, Wayne, you should have been there. You had the reporters from The Sun and The Daily Mirror and The Daily Telegraph hanging out the window, making monkey noises, chanting niggas go home. That's the people who are supposed to be writing the news and telling the truth. These people will tell you that there was 5,000 black people, 10,000 black people marched on that day. It's a lie. They could have filled a football stadium. We stopped London, and we stopped London for a good cause.
0: The history that is taught in schools is essentially a PR campaign for the nation rather than actual attempts to offer true and critical understandings of said nation's past. I spoke with Wayne about the aftermath of the fire. You were only 17 with extensive injuries all over your body. How did this impact your mom and family?
2: My mom nearly lost her job because she had to look after me. And they gave my mom 500 pounds for me, for my injuries. 500 pounds, couldn't even buy an orthopedic bed back in 1981. My rehabilitation was because of my friends' It's my friends who used to come and take me out and make me walk, make me do exercises, pick me up when I was down. Mm. We didn't get no help. Hmm. That still hurts.
0: Mm -hmm. Reflecting on where you're currently at, what is life like for you now?
2: I'm here. I'm alive. I can tell the story. I've been married. Unfortunately, my wife passed away a few years ago. I've got a wonderful son. I've traveled, I've done, I've done the most things. So, you know, the moral to my story is it doesn't matter who you are, what you've been through, there's always more. There's always more. You are not. You don't give up on life. Life is, such, life is such a wonderful thing.
0: Thinking about us here in the 21st century, how can we honor the memory and the legacy of those who died in the fire?
2: By never forgetting, don't try and put the new crossfire... To, to bed this is Brit- forget black history this is British history I was born in England I want this to be taught in the schools I want this to be put in British history books a lot of my white friends that I have now they had no idea what it was like for us black kids running around back in the 70s and 80s we as young black kids we weren't. we weren't Trying to fight racism, we were just trying to stay alive. There's a lot of people, a lot of young people that died back in in the 70s and 80s because of racism that was never been told. Those stories have never been told. Don't put no statues up anywhere. Give our community something that we can work with and build on. Not something that you're going to give us and then snatch the carpet from underneath us in two years' time because, oh, we got no funding. Do you know what? The Black British community need to learn one thing as far as I'm concerned. Nobody's here to help you. We need to help ourselves. And in doing so, we need to support each other in whatever we're doing. We need to support the next generation. We need to let the next generation always know that before you, there was somebody else that built a platform. Because without that foundation, none of us feel strong enough to keep going.
0: That's so true and really important to not just know, but to understand fully. We're coming to the end of our discussion. Are there any final words you'd like to share with our audience?
2: What is it they say? Is it the Englishman says? Lest we forget. Don't forget us. And I say to the people in, in power, the powers that be, forget us at your peril because we're coming. Always remember, it was an attack on humanity because the people that should have been caring and doing... Did not do the right thing, black and white. I will not go to my grave without making a mark for the new crossfire victims and survivors and everybody that was involved.
0: In our final episode of Reclaimed and Rewritten, we'll be hearing from you, our awesome audience. Myself and Paula from episode four will be discussing the themes of the season our thoughts on what has been learned, and we'll be responding to your voice notes. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. You can follow Galdem on all social media platforms at Zine, G-A-L-D-E-M-Z-I-N-E. Thanks for listening.